Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Almeta-Short, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Today, we will talk marine policy, and more specifically, community engagement and environmental justice around renewable energy development and natural resources management and conservation. But before starting the episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Klikitat peoples from Tamil Memorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapan Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Klikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance to it for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Cowlitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. I make this acknowledgement to remind us that no diversity, equity, inclusion, or justice work can be done without including the voices and wisdom of the indigenous people, and Black Americans, those ancestors, were brought to this land as slaves and were instrumental in creating what we now call the United States of America. Today, my guest is Emma Corinne. Emma is currently a first-year marine policy PhD student at the University of Delaware. Her research focuses on energy justice within offshore wind farm development along the northeast coast of the United States. Prior to studying this program, Emma worked as the National Coral Reef Management Fellow in Puerto Rico to help involve stakeholders in coral reef management decision-making with a specific focus on managing the spread of a deadly coral disease outbreak. She also worked as the principal investigator of a sea turtle and forest conservation program in Costa Rica, which focused on research, community engagement, and volunteer education. These diverse experiences reflect her interdisciplinary background. She received a bachelor's degree from Bates College in Psychology and French with a minor in education and a master's degree from the University of Exeter in the UK in conservation and biodiversity. She is originally from Philadelphia, which is, has always been her home, but traveling is one of her favorite things in the world. She also loves scuba diving, surfing, and playing soccer. Welcome, Emma. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about you? Great, thanks. And I can see we have you know similar interests like traveling, scuba diving, and surfing. Yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, are you a surfer as well? Yeah, I used to. No, I can only do body surfing, but yes, uh, I I love playing in the water for sure. Same. <laughs> and um, yeah, like I just gave, you know, a brief description of your bio, which, you know, if I advise audience to go to your LinkedIn profile, it's amazing all the traveling experience you have. And um, it would be great if you can share a little with us, like, how it all started because, you know, you've been doing a lot and I can see 
you know, you got a bachelor degree in psychology in French. So how did you end up in marine policy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's funny because as I was kind of making the transition from having studied, you know, psychology and French, which is kind of language and social science over towards uh, what started as the more natural sciences in my master's degree and is now kind of more policy and economics, Um when I was first starting to make this transition, I felt like I had to justify my degree a lot. I kept trying to say to people, you know, yeah, I'm transitioning, try and, you know, ignore my undergraduate and focus on my graduate degree. Uh, but what I realized over time was actually um, there was no need to justify it or try and, you know, hide that because the field of conservation science is extremely, extremely interdisciplinary. And a lot of the jobs I got, I think I actually had a leg up because I had this social science background, which meant I could communicate with people and I knew how like societal interactions kind of worked. I had this language background, which meant I could travel and speak to different types of communities. Um, and so I think there's kind of a misconception that it's just scientists who are doing marine research, um, but actually there's a lot of different fields that are valuable in it. Um, but kind of to get back to your original question, which is how how I got involved in all of this, um, it sort of revolves around the fact that I, I've always just loved animals and nature, even when I was a kid. Um, I have a distinct memory of we went on this family trip to Costa Rica um, and we visited like a wildlife refuge center. And this woman came out holding a monkey. And I just remember thinking like, whoa, you can have a job that allows you to hold monkeys. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get <laughs> over that fact. Uh, and so I sort of always had this part of me in the back of my head that liked the idea of working with wildlife and nature. I've always loved hiking. You know, I love surfing, scuba diving, anything that's going out in the water. Um, but when I was doing my degree in, in psychology and French, you know, obviously that wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I was thinking about a possible other career paths of other things that interested me as well, um, including teaching. I, I did a uh, minor in education. Um, but I think at some point during my psychology degree, we were learning about like really animals with high cognitive intelligence. You know, we did a unit uh, in one of my cognitive psychology classes about uh, apes and their ability to, you know, understand language and have their own language as well as dolphins and elephants having these sort of showing emotions that seem similar to empathy. And I was just fascinated by that. So uh, after my psychology degree, I started exploring possible career paths that looked into like animal psychology research. Um, and the more I got involved in it, the more I realized that, uh, although that maybe was a subject that really interested in me or really interested me, um, kind of every aspect of enjoying the beauty of nature and animals had this negative pull, this negative side of it, of how badly human activity and climate change are impacting these wild animals and these natural habitats. And I just kind of got more drawn to the idea that as fascinating as it would to, to be to study these animal psychologies, my passion sort of drove me more towards, okay, what career path could help me 
help me try and restore those habitats, help me help those animals that fascinate me so much. Uh, and so that's what really drove me towards uh, animal and wildlife and habitat conservation over this psychology side of it. Um, and I think a lot of my experience shaped experiences shaped that as well. I ended up taking an internship in Kenya working with a company called Save the Elephants. Um, and it was only a three-month program, you know, compared to a lot of other experiences. It was kind of relatively short, but it might have had the biggest influence of anything else I've done in my life because I was just blown away with these projects these people were doing that involved the community, involved, you know, helping the animals, involved finding innovative solutions to uh, deal with these conservation issues that we were facing. Um, and it was after that internship that I ended up getting my master's degree and and kind of following along this career path um, in, in sort of, I'll say, wildlife conservation slash policy because now I'm now I'm moving toward more towards the management side uh rather than kind of the you know uh it's all interconnected it's all interconnected <laughs> <laughs> no it is no for sure and and what is interesting because I was looking like your master also was um about bats right yes. so yeah so another step before actually going into more like you know the water and you did it also in the UK. Why? So why bats and why the UK? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I will say this, whenever I look into a project that I'm interested in, I think there are a lot of people who are in love with one species of animal or one topic and they, they're drawn to that. And so you have someone who, you know, has been, for example, a shark biologist since the beginning of their career to the end. Um, whereas for me, it's it tends to be more, um, I'll almost say the final project, the, the final goal or the research question that interests me more than a species itself. Um, so with the bat projects, what I was, what what was presented to me, and I will say when I was doing my master's, we were given a list of possible topics to choose. What attracted me to the BAT project was that it was, the the idea was that we would work with farming communities uh, to collect data and try and understand how different farming practices, such as, you know, organic farming practices versus non-organic farming practices, or um, sustaining, uh, you know, beneficial habitats for bats, such as preserving forest lands around farmland uh, rather than destroying it to create more farmland. The goal was to see how those different practices impacted bats. So although I'm now a big fan of bats now that I've done this project and I love them, <laughs> I wasn't some you know crazy girl for bats saying, oh, I want to study them. It was more that the whole concept of this project where you're working with communities to try and understand how we can adjust our human behaviors to improve ecosystems for the wildlife, that was an extremely attractive project to me yeah and no, i totally see that and i see also how you you have to move to some project related to more like sea turtle or so conservations and where you have to work a lot with the community as well so i can see a lot of parallels that even like you said you the species um you're going to study uh are trying to protect can be really different but some of the issues can be really similar too and is it something you 
you experienced, like you think you can say this is what happened with the other projects you worked on later on? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I've I've if I were to list all the species or habitats or topics I've worked with, you know, it's it would seem crazy. Elephants, dolphins, sea turtles, bats, coral reefs, and now wind energy, which is not even an animal. Um, all of them are completely completely different in and of themselves. But the commonality between every single project I've done is exactly what you mentioned, which is working with communities to try and find sustainable solutions. Because, And this is kind of ties back to what I was saying at the beginning, where psychology is really relevant, actually, because the whole concept is we cannot conserve habitats without changing people's behaviors. Uh, that's just the fact of it. Um, and it doesn't mean that people are evil, animals are good. That's not the narrative at all. What, what the situation is, is in order to find a peaceful coexistence um, where humans can thrive without destroying the environment, there has to be behavioral changes. Um, and I believe that those are achievable. We just have to approach them in the right way. And that's the commonality between all of the research I've done. So taking the example of the sea turtles that you just brought up, it's a similar concept. Um, the communities we work in, in Costa Rica no one's anti-sea turtle, but we just experience scenarios where someone has a pet dog to guard their house. Well, that pet dog might run away onto a beach, start digging up and eating sea turtle eggs. And because that's not a natural part of the, the, um, the food chain, since dogs were introduced by people in that area, well, now we have a problem where the sea turtle populations are depleting at a surplus because of that. And so what you have to do is you have to try and find a solution uh, that allows someone to keep a dog, but um, prevents that dog from ruining the sea turtle population and trying to kind of restore some of that ecosystem balance that existed prior to humans, you know, uh, development in the area. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to find you know like this balance and how do you achieve that and something that maybe also um i don't know if that would apply also with the sea turtles because i don't know for example if people uh, depend on so if they are completely protected or some people were using sometimes the eggs for you know a subsistence food but i was thinking also at some of the projects you've been working in puerto rico related to coral reef disease um I was curious, like also, because the risk, you have the risk to the animals, but I was wondering also when you have, for example, like a species that has been, you know, that is going to be endangered or coral reef species that are like, you know, declining or having more outbreak in diseases, what are also some of the consequences, like the socioeconomic consequences as well? And then how do you bring, you know, the community on board to realize it's not only, you know, an issue on the environment, but it's going to affect you as well, then we need to find some solutions. Absolutely. That's a really, really excellent point um, because that often ends up being almost the most important factor because if you're trying to convince somebody why we should care about coral reef ecosystems, you know, some people just care innately. Some people uh, love the beauty of nature for nature. Some people don't. And I understand if it's completely irrelevant to your life, why would you give an ounce of thought to helping some fish, <laughs> you know, that you don't even have any connection to whatsoever? Um, and that's what makes coral reefs 
almost a great ecosystem to work with, especially on an island like Puerto Rico, where I was based, because their benefits are numerous. Uh, first of all, they serve as a good um, barrier, a, a, a natural protection of the land, because when a storm hits, when you have big waves coming in, the coral reef serves as this sort of um, big structure that naturally diminishes the size of the waves before they reach the land and prevents people from suffering the consequences of, of these waves washing up. And that's something that everyone from Puerto Rico, especially those who lived through, you know, Hurricane Maria, can very clearly and tangibly understand, oh, that's a really good benefit. Uh, you know, I want my land protected. Um, or anyone who eats fish, you know, if you like seafood, well, 25% of the world's fish species depend on coral reefs. That's kind of the broad estimate. Um, so if you like seafood, you might want to keep coral reefs, uh, you know, sustaining and happy. Um and so it's when you're trying to do a public campaign or even convince a government official, you know, looking into policy of it. When I was in Puerto Rico, we were able to achieve a tremendous goal, which was getting the governor of Puerto Rico to sign an executive order declaring a state of emergency due to the fact that there is this disease affecting these corals. Um, and it truly is an emergency. The best way that you can sell your argument is say, look, Coral reefs are extremely important and they save Puerto Rico money because now we don't have to build these artificial structures protecting the coastline or spend money, uh, you know, doing some other uh, emergency service to try and increase the fish populations that the fish economy can can be successful. Coral reefs naturally do this. If we can protect them, uh, then we're saving lives, we're saving money. Um, and so here's why you should sign this executive order. Um, and that really goes a long way. Yeah, that's, you know, amazing that you've been, that you've been able to be part of this process. And, and I'm curious, like, how much work was done ahead until you arrived to this executive order? Because I guess you had to do a lot of um, community engagement as well and, and you know, use different kind of tools and approaches to ask people about, I don't know, this issue, where is the disease, what can we do about it, why is it important, and educate people. What were some of the, the tools or work you've been doing um, to educate people about this issue and engage them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly, there's a huge amount of work that had been done prior to my arrival and during my arrival up until this point where we were able to get this signed. And after that, you know, it's always a continuous ongoing process. And in terms of education, um, I would say that was almost one of the more fun parts of the job because uh, a lot of the other things, you know, when you're when you're trying to do kind of research and conservation work, some of it can be a lot of sitting in an office. When I tell people I work with coral reefs, a lot of them are like, whoa, are you out in the water every day? But actually a lot of what I did was uh, sitting in an office typing up reports. But the education was great. You could actually go out and engage with people and just talk to them about the subject you love most, which, you know, who doesn't want to do that? Um, and so we did a number of programs. We had something called Coral Reef Week, which uh, was really cool. When I was there, it was virtual because of the pandemic. Um, and I think this year it's going to be a bit more of both, although we did get to do some in-person workshops. But what's fun is basically I would reach out to 
everyone on the island who had something to do with coral reefs and could have something to offer, whether it was a nonprofit or NGO organization, whether it was a university um, or, you know, some sort of academic uh, institution, whether it was another governing body, such as the EPA or the Coast Guard. And we would say, we're doing Coral Reef Week. Do you have a research project you'd like to present the results on? Or do you have a topic that you would like people to be more aware of and discuss? Or do you have a fun game that you like to play with kids to engage them, to help them learn more about coral reefs? We actually had a podcast host do kind of a Q&A session during that week. So really anyone who uh, had something to offer to educate people would come. And that is great because you just get this diversity of projects, of people, of topics. You have non-scientists and scientists. You have artists. You have creative people. It's really this cool group of people coming together to host almost this kind of symposium of different workshops and talks that you can attend any number of them. Um, and it was it was really fun. And I think that goes a very long way in getting people engaged. Yeah. And I think it always comes down to often, yeah, having something that is engaging people, something that is fun, um, interactive. But what were some of the challenges that maybe you encountered, like really to bring people in? Yeah, for sure. I think um, one challenge, you know, of course, is this sort of virtual concept. It seems a bit, you know, no one wants to do another webinar, you know, if it really interests you, you'll go, but it's harder to get people engaged, although there is the huge benefit of that when it's virtual, much more people can come, of course. So I don't even want to say it's a downside. It's just there are pros and cons. Um, but certainly another ch challenge, I think, is getting people to come in the first place. So for example, you know, talking about the general public, because um, a lot of the audience for these things is people who already have an interest, which makes sense. You know, if you're going to go out of your way to attend this event, you probably already have an interest in coral reefs. So I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to get that person who doesn't even really know what a coral reef is, you know, and, and there's a lot of, we have a lot of fun because corals are animals and a lot of people think they're plants or rocks, which makes sense. I think I thought that before, you know, I started getting into this field. And so that's one of the most fun things. I, I did a program with um, kids at a local school and I said, hey, what's a coral? And when you give them that answer that it's an animal, because they all raise their hands for plants and rocks, and when you say it's an animal, they're like, wow, what? A coral? No way. And so even that sparks people's interest. You know, if you just kind of dispel some some theories and throw out some other fun, interesting facts, it gets people engaged. Um, but it's, it's really challenging to make that leap between you know, here's some fun facts about corals and you should really care and continue to event, attend these events and keep going out of your way, out of your already probably busy schedule to come over here and listen to these talks. That's a big challenge. Yeah, no, I can see that. And, and also I was wondering, so you talked about the general public and people having an, you know, interest more like academia and NGOs, but what about um, industries? Because I assume also you have the whole tourism industry, you have the fishing industry. Um, and sometimes if you do this kind of work of restoration, maybe you have also maybe more regulations. I was 
curious if she worked also in Italy on, on that end of things. Yes, absolutely. So especially with coral reefs, I think with any conservation science, you're always, you're always going to have uh, certain industries that, that do have a stake in this, that are stakeholders in this game, have, a, have um, some impact or, you know, this resource impacts them. And with a lot of them, like you said, um, tourism is a huge one. And in the case of Coris, fishing communities are also a huge community. Um, and I will say I had minimal engagement with them. I did a lot of discussing with other groups of people how to engage with them more because that was kind of step one. You don't want to necessarily just go to a fisher and say, hey, can you do more to help us out? They're going to be like, whoa, what? <laughs> I've got my own stuff to worry about. So instead, we did what I call kind of going to these mediators. So what I did was I talked a lot with, for example, conservation organizations, nonprofits who work a lot with fishers in the community. So we, we sort of try and understand um, the, the ways to connect with fishers through these other people in the local community who already have this good relationship. And really, a lot of the the, the conflict there comes from issues of trust, uh, not in all cases by any means, but it can happen. For example, tourism companies, you know, a scuba dive shop or a fisher and the the government organization that works with the environment, which is the Department of Natural Environmental Resources in Puerto Rico, we all have the same goal. If you look at the big picture, all of us want to conserve the reef. It's not even a question of having different uh, you know, end goals, and that creates conflict. We all actually want the same goal. But what you have is a problem in breakdowns in trust along this sort of chain where you have, you know, okay, maybe someone has a distrust in a government institution because of X, Y, and Z reasons, you know, or maybe um, someone views an academic as, you know, someone in the ivory tower who looks down on you. And so you don't want to engage with them. Or maybe, you know, one institution has an issue with an individual at another institution, and they broaden that out and decide they don't want to interact with that. You have all of these little reasons or big reasons along the way where people, maybe don't have complete trust in another group of people, whichever it is, whether you're a government organization interacting with fishers or a dive shop or a nonprofit or an academic institution, those are the barriers um, that prevent you from reaching that end goal or that, or that prevent you, I'd say, from working together to reach that end goal, even if that end goal is the same. Yeah, and I totally agree. And I think that's why I believe like, Social science, it's so crucial because you can have the best, you know, research studies happening, but after, if you cannot find ways or, you know, apply it or having people understanding it and agreeing on finding solutions together, uh, you're stuck. So I, <laughs> so I'm definitely like, yeah, you know, social science for sure. And, and I can see like you <laughs> with your background, like you said, in psychology, it totally makes sense when you encounter such situations um, because, yeah, human, <laughs> human nature is definitely really interesting and complex. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is kind of really relevant to sort of bring it all to what I'm working on right now, um, which uh, as a broad overview, and as I told you, I'm at the very beginning stages of this project. So, you know, more of this will come out over time. But as a broad overview, the project I'm going to be working on relates to um, energy justice issues within wind farm development. And the whole point of that is that, you know, if you, if you look at the literature surrounding this topic, just because an energy is renewable doesn't mean everything about it is inherently positive. Um, and if you develop something in a way that isn't inclusive of community members and doesn't take into account you know, things like are the benefits and burdens of this new energy project being evenly distributed amongst different communities? Or um, is there recognition of the fact that there may be historical injustices that could come into play when you're transferring these energy systems? Um, and if those aren't accounted for, you could have a project that is fantastic, but falls apart because you're not considering the fairness of the process and the justice throughout the process. Even if the concept of renewable energy is obviously has so many benefits, you can't just assume that it's all going to go well. And you need to really take into account the, the perspectives of the community members who are actually going to be, you know, the, the, the people who are using this new wind energy project who are right there in the neighborhood of this new energy project and make sure that um, they perceive this project as being fair and just and inclusive of their values and their needs. Yeah. And, and can you give, you know, more uh, specific examples of that could be, you know, some specific challenges related to, you know, um, equity, justice, also just values related to renewable energies. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to give my best overview, but I'm going to put a, uh, a caution at the beginning saying that this is a field I'm very new to just because I only just started my PhD and just started to look into this project. Um, but I will definitely say based on the literature that I've read, Trust can be a big issue once again, you know, if if people have been, if people have experienced mismanagement of projects led by government or other institutions in the past, they might be prone to feeling uncertain about how a new project is going to go in the future, or they might think that whoever's developing this project is just interested in meeting their own, you know, economic or financial targets without having actual consideration for how it impacts the local community who's who's living near this wind farm. Um, and so mistrust, again, is going to be one of these big challenges. Um, another challenge is just that there are differences between people and their preferences. You know, some people like how wind farms look, some people don't, and they don't want that messing with the view of their landscape that they've grown up with their whole life. Um, some people, you know, thrive off of the benefits of renewable energy and possibly the, the clean air that it could bring. And that's the number one priority. Um, other people might be highly disturbed by, for example, uh, there's a lot of noise pollution associated with it. Um, and so, again, I'm not 
at this stage of my career, I'm not the best person to list all the pros and cons of wind farms because it's something I'm new to and I've just started reading up on the literature. Uh, but I can say just there's natural differences in opinions and how does someone who's putting in a wind farm accommodate all of those different values and opinions. Uh, it's a very tricky task and it needs to be approached in a very delicate and inclusive way to ensure that voices of the community are actually being heard. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's true. It's a really, again, another complex <laughs> issue. And and because, you know, this through this PhD, like you said, you're going more toward marine, marine policy before you are doing more education and outreach and engagement. I mean, that, I guess, would be still a component of your work, but what really um, um, also interests you is in going more into marine policy and and how do you think the work you're going to do is going to be really like um, helping addressing today's needs and challenges uh, and informing future ones? Like what would be the role in marine policy in this case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think the idea of environmental conservation, there are so many different pieces at play and all of them have enormous value. There's the, the policy, those who develop, you know, kind of uh, management actions that can be taken in order to help try and find a solution. There's the researchers who can in, inform policy and say, this is what we found is helpful. This is what doesn't work um, and crunch the numbers. Uh, there's the educators who try and bring about awareness to everything and say, you know, uh, this is why more people should care about this issue, which can help uh, influence change. And I think that's one of the reasons my career has gone back and forth so much is because I'm really interested in every aspect of that. I've never, I've never sat down and said, oh, I only really care about the education. I'll leave this other part to someone else. I've always been engaged in many different parts of it, which is why I've had this, uh, you know, crazy career of hopping from one place to another, one project to another. Um, but ultimately, I think what kind of drew me to this policy uh, PhD was when I was working in Puerto Rico. I was working directly with the Department of Natural and Environmental Resources. I was working with the government, which is something that I didn't actually think uh, would excite me until I got there. And I was like, whoa, you're at the heart of the action. You really, you know, especially with something like this executive order or, um, Something like, for example, when I was, I, I did a lot of interviews with with researchers and um, uh, people who worked at non nonprofit institutions, and a lot of them were saying, uh, like, we really want this to happen, but uh, how can we actually get our voices heard at the government level? And I was like, I'm actually working with this government institution. I can take what these people are saying and pass it along up the chain to try and get these ideas of actions that can be taken to find solutions to actually move that up through the government process. And that was really exciting to me. I was like, I don't want to say it was like a thing about power because that makes it come off the wrong way, but it was more about influence. I, I didn't feel like my voice was small. I felt like my voice was just that much bigger because I was directly in an institution. No institution's perfect, but I was in one of the institutions that has the ability to 
promote actions that promote positive change. And that excited me a lot. And so when I was looking into this PhD program, I was like, wow, I can do this PhD that allows me to do some research, do some education and be closer to this policy concept, you know, this, this level of where the decision making occurs. Um, and I think that's what really drove me to, to go in this direction. Yeah. And for sure, it's been really interesting, uh, I mean, for you and, and me, I did some something that are similar to see like um, how the the flow of information, you know, the way it's going, and I think it's and also really rewarding when you be, can be part of all the different pieces in a way because you you move along with the project, and after to see like you can actually help making some change and um, and helping in you know finding equitable solutions. It's it's really rewarding, and. And I was wondering then, do you have, after your PhD, I know you just started, and I know it's always a question, but I'm like, ah, don't ask me that. But do you have an idea of what would you like to do next? Um, in a sense, like, would you like to stay maybe in academia or you really want to work more for the government, uh, some NGOs? Because you have the chance to see, to work with all the different agencies so, so far. You're like, oh, I don't know. We'll see what comes my way. Or do you, do you have a strong preference for one or the other? It's a great question. Uh, I think I'm at the stage of, I don't know, we'll see what comes my way. Um, I've always liked the idea of being a professor, uh, you know, as that's sort of outlining the, the academia route, um, just because I really enjoy teaching. I enjoy research and I enjoy kind of... Um, mentoring. I like the idea of like mentoring students and, and young professionals coming into the field. Um, and also that does include the community aspect. Professors have huge ability to connect with other organizations and communities in their area to help um, inform and, and participate in research. And so it kind of does combine all of those topics I was talking about before. Uh, but I'm by no means on this set track where I'm certain I will become a professor. It's definitely something where I want to use, you know, my next five years of this PhD to gain perspectives of what different career paths are like and which one might be best suited towards my interest. Um, so I, I have a very open mind at this point. And I guess it might be a similar answer that I was going to ask you, is there a specific topic that you would like, you know, to work on next that really attracts you? One that you touched on, you know, in the past through your different experience or one you don't know too much about, but that intrigues you and you would like to work more, you know, on this issue? Yeah, sure. Um Wind farm energy is interests me a lot. The more I'm reading about it, the more I'm getting involved uh, in in this topic, the more excited I am about it. And I think really one of the reasons it attracts me is that it's huge right now. You know, when we're talking about renewable energy and uh, a lot of the recent, you know, e even coming down to like the 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 government promises that Biden has made for further developing renewable energy, a huge portion of that involves increasing offshore wind energy. And there's a huge amount of projects that are currently being either proposed or developing off the East Coast US. So it's just a big topic and it's a new topic. It's not it, not to say it hasn't been around. You know, there's lots of wind farms, especially in Europe, there are a lot of offshore wind farms. But relatively speaking, 
it's something that we're kind of in this beginning phase. It's almost this opportunity because it's just now developing. We have the opportunity to try and do it right. You know, if we're going to build wind farms, if we're going to do all this offshore wind energy, we're at the stage right now where we have the power to decide how that process is going to look and trying to do it in a way that is maximally beneficial for the environment and for affected communities and for all other stakeholders involved. So that excites me. It's kind of, you know, you're not looking at the past and saying, oh, what went wrong? You're looking at the future and saying, how can we make sure we do this right? And so that's why I think this topic might really stick with me. Um, I'm certainly open to many other topics that could come my way. As you've seen from the past, I (laughs) tend to be easily uh, excited into taking a new opportunity, even if it's completely different from what I've done before. But I will say that that is one reason why I really think this whole idea of uh, offshore wind farming um, is something that I would like to keep down the path of. Plus, I'm going to spend the next five years focusing in on it. I certainly don't want to do that unless it, it it's something I'm excited about, and it is something I'm excited about. No, no, totally makes sense, and it's good to hear that you, yeah, to hear that because yeah, like you want to make sure you're going to. But you're going to study the, you know, in the next five years, you're excited about it. So, <laughs> yes, of course. And it's exciting. Like you said, we're not really sure uh, where it's going to be. And so far, we have a lot of, you know, challenges on how to reduce um, greenhouse gases and, you know, with sea level rise and and all those issues. It's like, we, I feel like right now it's where a lot of things are going to to help figuring out if we're going to be on the, you know, going to meet those goals and if we're going to, I don't know, help reduce some of those, you know, effects. And, um, and it's, I can see like it's exciting times, but it's probably a little also, I mean, for me, stressful times too. So I don't know how you feel about that, but, but yeah, it can be a challenging spot to be as well when you are in that field. Absolutely. Me and my friends were talking about this the other day because um, there's kind of two perspectives. On the one hand, you you read all this negative, cynical news about the environment, and there's almost two thoughts about it. The cynical thought is, wow, why am I even in this field? There's so much, you know, it's so impossible to, to navigate and to find good solutions that actually end up end up happening. But then the other perspective is, oh, good thing I'm in this field because there's so much negative stuff. Here's the one way I can really make sure I have an impact is by, you know, devoting my entire career to it. That's not the one way. There are many ways one can have an impact, but that's the maximal way you can have impact is devoting everything you have to it. Um, And so I'm not going to say I always feel one way or the other. Sometimes I'm in a cynical mood. Sometimes I'm in a positive mood. And there's definitely a huge emotional challenge associated with it. Every time you read the new climate change report and see that it's worse than ever, that's not fun. That's not fun to read. That's extremely disheartening. Um, But I think there's this concept called ocean optimism that I'm sure maybe you've come across. Uh, And I had a really inspirational talk from someone who was sort of, um, I don't don't know if she founded this concept or if uh, she, she, 
you know, um, helped improve it and make it more widespread. But she talked to us about this whole idea of ocean optimism, which is um, if you sit there and focus on these negative aspects and just continue to focus on them, focus on them, of course, you're going to feel depressed and hopeless. But that's not the whole story. It truly isn't. You can, you know, I think as a nation, we're attracted to negative news. But you can look in, into research and stories and find a lot, a lot, a lot of positive news. You, you really heartwarming stories about how much people have done and how much effort has gone into and, and how many successful scenarios there are of conservation projects working, whether it's, you know, re restoring reefs through any number of different techniques or whether it's, you know, helping the sea turtles and th this like this successful campaign of not using straws because there was a viral video about finding a straw in a turtle's nose. And it seems negative because you, you see that horrible instance of how much plastics affected that turtle. But actually that one video led to laws being passed banning plastic straws. I mean, that's incredible. It led to huge worldwide movements of people saying we need to make a change. And you can really really turn the perspective around when you focus on those positive stories and focus on, wow, how much difference can we make? And there's a huge difference we can make when we put our minds together and try and improve uh, the situation and promote ocean conservation in a healthy way. I agree. And I will look into that concept of ocean optimism. I yeah, I don't yeah. think I've heard about it, but it, it totally makes sense to me and like how, you know, to flip the narrative. And I think it's something also that is applicable for any anything in your life, basically. Um, yeah, and you've been studying psychology, I guess, you know, it's totally yeah. applicable too. Like how, like, as humans, I guess, yeah, we have tendency of being um, focusing often on the ne negative and not seeing all the the positive next to it and, and things to be grateful for. So no, that's really um, uplifting too, because I've, you know, I agree, sometimes we can just look at the bad, but there are so many things um, uh, that has been done that are like amazing and so much progress and so much interest in, you know, making things better. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to, to ask you because um, I guess we're getting toward the end of her you know interview but do you have any final words you would like to share with our audience sure uh i i met someone the other day he was um funnily enough was actually studied psychology in Spanish, so very similar to what I did, and said they were looking into getting environmental into environmental conservation. And I think there are more and more people out there who are really interested in getting into this field because it's all around us, discussions of environmental issues and how much that impacts every other aspect of, of our lives is really important. So I think there could be a lot of people out there, I assume, who are interested in this field, but maybe, you know, didn't study the topics that seem most directly towards it. And so because I have this diverse background and this very interdisciplinary background, uh, I just want to put a word out there of encouragement to, 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 you know, embrace going into that subject and don't be scared by the fact that maybe you studied something different or you don't know about it yet because you really learn as you go. Um, and like I said, there's, you know, 
this field is much more than one subject. I think more than possibly any other field, environmental conservation requires people from almost any discipline I can think of. I'm taking economics class right now. I don't think most people think of economics as important for environmental conservation. It is incredibly important. It is one of the most important concepts for passing policy. So, you know, every single type of different um, expertise out there, you could make a case for why it's valuable for environmental conservation. So no matter who you are, you can and should get involved is, is one sort of final message I'd like to impart. Thank you. And I think that's a great message um, because I agree. We need people from also all different kind of, you know, perspectives and background. Uh, and that makes the field even more like, you know, richer. And I'm sure like also, like you said, um, brings you, you know, if you if your background in psychology, right, brought you a better understanding of some of those issues and some of the challenges and barriers in often, you know, working with people and implementing regulations. I mean, things that manage people. So it's definitely a really important field, and um, and of course, economics because yeah, it's often about the money. <laughs> so it's often like the main money matters. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. Thank you so much, Emma. It's been really a pleasure to chat with you. And um, maybe another time on the side, I would love to learn more about your travel stories because, yeah, uh, yeah it's amazing, like places you've been traveling. So I'd like to, to know more so about that. And um, yeah, and I would say merci. <laughs> merci beaucoup. <laughs> merci beaucoup. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, wishing you the best um, for your PhD. And I'm sure you're going to be amazing at it. And good luck with everything because also it's, you know, it has its up and down, it's tough, but um, persistence sure. is also key. So I'm sure you, you'll be great. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for saying that. And thank you for having me. It's It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to um, be on this podcast. <laughs>